Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Emily Brush, Project Coordinator and Director of Making Invisible Histories Visible, a program of Omaha Public Schools. An Omaha native, Emily Brush attended Mount Holyoke College in Western Massachusetts, double majoring in art history and American studies. For her senior project, Emily explored the archives of Deerfield, a picturesque New England town, to find records that showed slaves had lived in the town, creating a digital documentary of her findings as an educational resource. Emily also was a resident scholar at the Newport Historical Society, discovering that a slave likely had lived in the colonial home owned by the Historical Society. Returning to Omaha, Emily studied law and worked for a short time at a local law firm before leaving to help the Omaha Public School District develop a new program called Making Invisible Histories Visible, which launched in 2010. Emily, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Stuart. I'm glad to be here. So, Making Invisible Histories Visible. Could you describe that program for us, please? I'd love to. Making Invisible Histories Visible is an initiative of the Omaha Public Schools and comes out of its social studies department. We started in 2010 with the idea that we needed more content for social studies teachers to use in their classroom about underrepresented history uh, that related in particular to Omaha. So with that idea in mind, we sat down and thought about how to bring teachers from OPS and OPS eighth grade graduates together in the summer months to work in a collaborative way to put something together. So we ended up coming up with a pretty clear format for our project, where every summer in July, 24 OPS students work in close collaboration with OPS teachers and university students to make digital history projects about different aspects of Omaha and Nebraska's underrepresented history. And at the heart of that is giving students the chance to talk to people about their lived experience and their life. So the students are trained in how to do an oral history, and they go out into the community and get to sit down with someone and learn from them what they remember about a historical event and about their life. And then they get to return to our program headquarters, which the last few years have been at UNO, and make a short documentary about that person and the history that they're studying. Another important part of how the program works is that instead of kids learning from a textbook, they learn from the city itself. So they go out and they explore historical buildings and try to understand what happened there and why that space is important to the history that they're studying. And they get the chance to learn from items that you'd find either in an archive or in, in a dusty old box in someone's basement. So learn how to look at an old photograph or an old newspaper article or maybe an old funk band musician's furry boots and think about what the significance of those items is, what story they can tell through those items. So they collect those materials as well and make a web page related to the documentary that showcases some of those historic photos. You mentioned a funk band musician's furry boots. Mm -hmm. So I can't let that go. Right. So it seems to me that that might be a good place to ask you to maybe unpack that experience as an example of what a student, and and I understand they're ninth graders, so Mm -hmm. what a ninth grader would experience going into the program Mm -hmm. and then working their way through it. What would the activities be and, and how would they uncover funk band furry boots? Sure. So um, actually two shoes, two interesting pairs of shoes came out um, this summer. So let's say you're an eighth grade student. You've just graduated from Nathan Hale. Um, you know that in when you leave school in May, you know that you're going to, in July, um, be coming to the White CEC Center for seven days to immerse yourself in an aspect of Omaha's history. And you would know that because I would have visited the students' school in about March or April to interview them. 
and to find out why they're interested in doing the project and to find out why they would be a good fit for it. So we give kids an opportunity to really have their first job interview or to learn what a college interview might be like during that process. And also just make sure a kid is really willing to commit to this kind of an intense um, intellectual exercise. So when July rolls around, they arrive on the first day and we do provide them with transportation. So they arrive at UNO, they're greeted by cheery um, university students and teachers, get to know the other students that are participating in the program a little bit, and then they are given um, what we call the project pitch. So the teachers have prepared for them videos that explain what the different topics are going to be for the summer. So this summer, we looked at Omaha's music history, and the students get to pick which project topic they want to join. So then they have a little voting sheet, and they hear all these project pitches. So this summer, we looked at funk music in Omaha. We looked at new American voices, so the sounds of the more recent immigrants to Omaha, in particular of the refugee communities. We looked at women in indie rock. We looked at polka music. Um, so the students are sitting there, they pick their project topics, and then they're assigned to a university student and a teacher who have done some preparation in advance of the program to meet them and start sharing with them a little bit of background information about the topic. And then they are quickly sent out into the community to start interviewing people, to hear people's stories about their topic and um, start looking through digital archives to find old newspaper articles related to their topic and look through personal collections of the musicians of their old photographs and records and things like that. Where did mm -hmm. they go and what were the materials that they were using and, and how did they identify the oral history component, the people involved in that? Mm -hmm. Well, in advance of the students' arrival, we set up all the oral history interviews. So that's one of the more enjoyable parts of my job is getting to talk to community members and figure out who is the right person for the students to interview in July. Um, but the students, uh, they are given kind of a, a task, and the task is to identify a place, a historic photo, and a historic artifact, as well as a song that is significant to their project topic. And then they are told that they have to describe the artifact or the object or the photograph, and then explain its significance to their topic. So they have to, as a group, work together to understand its significance and then write it out in a way that another OPS student could understand what they're saying. Talk a little bit more then about the interview process, mm -hmm. which I would imagine might seem quite daunting for an eighth grader mm -hmm. to ask people questions about the topic and about their lives and about their experiences. In preparation for going out and conducting an oral history interview, which there's a lot of pressure around. I mean, we've set up in you know months in advance these interviews with these, you know, highly skilled, in this case, this past summer, these highly skilled musicians who are ready to share their story and it's an important story. So we don't want the students to be going in cold. So we work with a professor from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln named Patrick Jones, who's in the um, Ethnic Studies and the History Department at UNL. And he gives the kids sort of a basic training in how to conduct an oral history from a historian's perspective. And then we also had a documentary filmmaker come in, um, Tessa Weedberg, who shared some of her tips from a technical aspect for making sure that the, the filming goes well. So the two of them give the kids really amazing and well-done lectures on how to conduct an oral history interview. And then their teachers meet with the students in small groups with Dr. Jones again to give them some of the background um, historical understanding that they're going to need to be able to come up with meaningful questions for their interview subjects. Uh, so we give them kind of, you know, where they sit and get in all of those situations. We pair that with giving the students over the weekend an opportunity to interview a family member. And we give them about 12 questions that they are expected to ask of someone that is, we say, either a generation or two older than them, either that's a family member or maybe a neighbor or a close family friend, um, where they have to learn 
what that encounter is going to feel like to sit across from someone for an extended period of time and have a guided question where they, as a teenager, are expected to lead the conversation. I mean, it's all very new to someone that age. I would say that it's probably new to most people. So they all come back from, all the students come back from that weekend experience with a really um, positive, warm smile on their face. They just thought it was so cool to learn from someone that had been in their life for maybe forever, kind of what their youth was like. They think they forged a new level of connection with a um, family member. And so, you know, that has value, connecting with your family and your community in a new way on a deeper level. But then they've also had, I think, really useful um, hands-on experience conducting an interview. So they come back after having done that, I think, ready to interview a community member for their project. This program has been running since 2010. Mm-hmm. I would imagine it's changed a lot and traversed a, a number of different project domains. Mm-hmm. So how has it changed over the last several years? And what are some of the topic areas that the students have focused on? I would say throughout the years, we have just continued to refine and perfect our methodology. And some of the biggest changes from a programming standpoint that have happened, you know, after really talking to students and teachers about what was valuable to them, um, we have cut down the amount of professor and teacher lecture time and upped the amount of time that students are out in the community, you know, poking around dusty old buildings and learning that way, and then also upping the number of interviews that the students do. Initially, the interview was sort of secondary to the seat time that we had with the students. And just seeing how influential that opportunity is to a youth, we have continued to grow that aspect of the program. And as a result, the documentary portion of of the project has gotten big so big that it almost doesn't fit on our OPS web server. And we kind of had to take it off to YouTube for a faster streaming experience. But I think that is 100% the right move for the students and for the program. Um, As far as what themes have we explored over the years, it has been so fun to realize how endless the topics are uh, available to us for this program. So I would say the first three years, we focused on African-American history. And it's always very place-based history. So given the makeup of our state, it really focused on Omaha more than outstate, although we have looked at some of the early pioneers to places like Cherry County. Um, And within Omaha, we've really focused on the North Omaha neighborhood where African-Americans have in large part lived. And then after that, we spent one year looking at South Omaha with an emphasis on its Mexican-American heritage. And then we spent two years looking at Omaha's indigenous history, 
which for me was so eye-opening. I just, that was not a history I knew a lot about. And I think it was really powerful for the students and teachers as well for the same reason. And then after that, we realized we had kind of isolated out different aspects of our city's history. We had kind of segregated them out. And we wanted to find a topic that looked at different cultural and ethnic groups at the same time and see how they how we all interacted together. So we looked at monuments around town that were named after people from underrepresented groups. And we sort of stopped. That was sort of the only qualification. So we looked at everything from Lake Zerinsky, which was named after um, a prominent Jewish figure from Omaha, and um, the Rose Theater, named after Rose Blumkin, as well as looking at the name of our city, Omaha, which, you know, is the name of a local Native American tribe, which, again, I don't think most people know, and the Washington Library Branch, which was named after Charlie Washington, who was an important community figure in North Omaha. So that's kind of been the direction we've taken it since then, was finding project topics that allow us to look at a wide variety of historical perspectives and stories at the same time. And in the last two years, we've looked at Omaha's music history, which kids and teachers alike think is super fun. Which I think has also included uh, dance, too, if I'm right. Yes, as it relates to the musical topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the impact of this project, especially now that it's unfolded and is approaching sort of a decade mm -hmm. of work. First of all, let's talk about the impact on the students. So what, what have you seen as some of the outcomes or perhaps as surprising consequences for the students that have gone through this program? For me, there have been really some magical moments that stand out and I think sort of the most magical moments are when a student who is from a neighborhood learns about a building or a place that they pass by every day. And through this experience, they understand what happened there. They have pride in that and they can maybe see a different future for their neighborhood than they could have before. One of our first years in the project, we had a student who talked about driving by the Dreamland Ballroom every day. And he, you know, lived around the corner and always just saw it as kind of a, in his mind, a dusty old building. And he, through the course of our project, learned that, so he was working on jazz history that summer. He learned that that was once an important spot for jazz musicians and culture in North Omaha. And then he learned by looking at an old jazz poster of the um, Basie Orchestra that his relative, I think it was like his grandpa, was a jazz musician, which he'd never put together, and that his grandpa played in that room and was in the poster that he was studying. And that was such an aha moment for him. But I think it was also an important moment for the teacher who also taught in North Omaha that if you can connect with a student about the history of their place, it's going to make them more open to studying history more generally. And to find there's nothing better than having pride in where you live, both for the teacher and for the student. So have you, have you found that being in this program has translated into other academic progress later on for that student and perhaps even professionally now that we're talking about sort of eight, nine years worth of programming? Mm -hmm. Yes, one of our goals is to help students transition from eighth grade into high school. For OPS, um, historically, there had been a high rate of success through eighth grade. And then when students were hitting their freshman year in high school, there was a higher rate of not succeeding. It just was a difficult transition for students and we had a higher um, dropout rate for high school freshmen. So we have tracked our students who have participated in our program through, we've tracked them through um, the end of their high school career. And they do at a much higher rate than their average uh, OPS counterpart make it successfully through 
ninth grade, they're much more likely to graduate from high school. You know, part of what we do in the summer is try to help them improve their writing and teamwork and confidence skills before they start high school. So that's that's sort of like a, a given that we're going to help them get those academic skills um, improved. But maybe if even one or two students goes on to do public history work, where they're helping tell other people's stories, it would it would make it all worthwhile. So then what about inverting that and talking about the impacts of the program for the teachers, the social studies teachers, and the degree to which it has a broader impact on the educational system at OPS? I think that our program can do really the most good through its work with the teachers who do the program. Because we can work with a, you know, a handful of students each summer but we can work with, you know, every summer eight teachers who then go into a classroom and during the course of a school year impact hundreds of students. So we really see our program as as much professional development for the teachers as we see it as a program for the eighth grade students. Our thought is if we can get teachers in OPS, and I think we're uh, this is happening, to be more willing and not only willing, but excited and enthused about including underrepresented history into their curriculum, that that is a success for our students in OPS and for our city as a whole. And I think when a teacher working with our summer program sees how excited these students get when they uncover this history and feel pride in their community, whether they live in West Omaha or whether they live on the South Side, that just makes it so much easier for a teacher to want to spend a little extra time while they're doing their lesson prep to find ways to incorporate our web page into their classroom curriculum. It's interesting to me that we have thus far been talking through the lens of education and children, but I also think that perhaps there's a slightly darker underbelly to this, which is why is it as a community and I'm sure we're not atypical, but that there are such underrepresented histories that need to be unearthed by these students to present that back to the community. And that perhaps is a long way to get into the question to talk about the impact of the program, not just on the students and the teachers, but us, the community, being also an audience for the underrepresented histories that we're paying uh, no attention to. Historians tend to write about what is of interest to them. And usually what is of interest to a person is their own story. I mean, that is the, the same thing relates to what our students find interesting. They like learning about their own neighborhood. So for, you know, millennia, history has largely been told by men who would identify as 
white or Anglo-Saxon. So it's sort of natural that they were going to focus on a history that relates to them. So it gives us an, a great opportunity as public historians and teachers and activists to change that and make history more reflective of our society, which is made up of other people too. Part of why we've always been glad and grateful to have the internet, for, I like the internet for all kinds of reasons, but in this case, to have a platform for a digital history project like this is that we can have an audience beyond the Omaha Public Schools. Anyone who can sit down on a and find an internet access can find this information. And that was always a goal of our project, was that this could be a resource for the Omaha community. And I think it has proven to be so. Just from running into people at community events, they talk about how they've been able to use our website for their own research. And then I'll occasionally get an email from someone in a different country who's studying something and stumbles across our webpage and is grateful for the information they were able to find. So recent press coverage included an organization called Teaching Tolerance. Mm -hmm. And I don't know much about the organization, so I'm going to ask you to explain it. But the fact that it's called Teaching Tolerance, I think, speaks very much to the importance of this program for this particular cultural moment that we find ourselves in when perhaps polarization and almost willful, deliberate misunderstanding of other people's perspectives and positions historically and as represented today is marring our social cohesion. And so tell me maybe a little bit more about why, what Teaching Tolerance is and, and why that organization was interested in covering this program. Teaching Tolerance is a publication of the Southern Poverty Law Center, and it's a long-standing publication for teachers that, like the title suggests, promotes tolerance amongst students and teachers and the community more generally. My former boss at OPS was a man named Harris Payne, who was a long-time social studies teacher within OPS who went on to an administrative career. He was the supervisor of social studies for OPS. And he was at a National Council for Social Studies meeting and ran into the editor of Teaching Tolerance. And uh, Harris was good at promoting both OPS, which he loves and and wanted everyone to, to love, um, but also a good promoter of our program. So he found a way to chat with her and shared with her what we were doing. And she was awestruck. She thought it was incredible that a program like this, which was very innovative and novel, was coming out of the Midwest. And so they did a really lovely article on our project at that time. Clearly, making Invisible Histories visible is a remarkable initiative. Is it fairly unusual across the country that there is this kind of summer programming for school districts? I would say it is unusual. Whenever we've had the opportunity to present at a National Council for Social Studies meeting, we have teachers who attend our session, I think because they've never heard of anything quite like it, um, but then make an effort to come up to me and Barry Thomas, who's also who took Harris's role, um, he's now the social studies supervisor for OPS, and tell us how much this means to them, even though we're not covering their community's history, just to even get the idea uh, that they could take this kind of a program back to their own town and do something similar, either within the classroom setting or as an after-school program or um, in a summer program in their own town. And that they're inspired by what we're doing is suggest that. In that article that's online on the Teaching Tolerance website, mm -hmm. Harris Payne is quoted as saying this, we use the past to get students to dream about the future, which I think is a wonderful synopsis mm -hmm. of the aspiration for the program. But it makes me want to ask you, given that the program has been going for, and successfully for several years now, mm -hmm. How do you dream about the future for the program? What what might be next? Well, two years ago, we started 
really having that conversation about what what's next for this program. And we added at that time uh, an additional follow-up program for OPS high school students who were alumni of the program who could continue to connect with what we're doing and um, do additional work for their community. So we have a, a history mapping program that takes place in June each summer now um, where students make place-based history maps where they take an aspect of Omaha's history and use GIS, which stands for Geo-Informational Systems um, Technology, to make an interactive map that the community can use. So that's one way that we're pushing it into the future is just finding kind of ways to spin off our ninth grade program to continue to impact OPS students throughout their high school careers. Um, And the program that we did this summer went particularly well. And I'm happy to talk about that. But to um, answer your question, the other thing that Barry and I were talking about just last week was, you know, as soon as one program ends, we we get excited and immediately start thinking about what we're going to do next. But we are throwing around the idea of having students study a little bit more lightly the history of maybe a neighborhood or even a street. And rather than turning it into a project about the history of that place, rather maybe write up a business plan for a building on that street and think through, you know, given the the past of the neighborhood, the current situation there, what could we do as either as students or as a community to bring that space either back to life or to move it in a different direction? Or to maybe decide it doesn't need to move in a different direction and that it's serving the community around it well as is. I love you, you, you. No one new will ever do. Honest, true, true, true. I'll forever be to you. I love you, no one new. Will ever ever do. I'll be good and true to you. Cause I love you, you, you. When we met, I knew my love for you was true. Like an angel from above, you were sent for me to love. I love you, no one knew. Will ever ever do. I'll be good and true to you. Cause I love you, you, you. I want to explore a little bit what it is that excites you about this, because I think you're clearly passionate about this. And so I want to jump back a little bit and ask you, you double majored in art history and in American studies. And so something in your upbringing, your childhood and your youth led you to be attracted to and captured by social studies in some way. Mm-hmm. So. What were your childhood experiences and, and what did appeal to you and draw you towards this? You know, I would say I had definitely had parents who valued learning and visiting museums and had an appreciation for old places. And when we traveled, it was usually to somewhere that had a historical significance. There were not a lot of beachy trips in my childhood. And when we visited those places together, I could see that my parents connected to them and wanted to read the, you know, description that came with whatever space we were visiting. But for me, that was good and I think would always lead me to want to travel and view buildings in a certain way. But um, I had a moment in college where I was in a American studies class and this teacher had pulled out of the archives a chest from maybe 1690 and we as a class got had the opportunity to each take a drawer out of the chest and talk about not only its aesthetic value and importance that way but to think about how that trunk came to be so we talked about who would have cut the wood the wood was made of a variety that didn't 
grow in that community. It came from several states over. So then thinking about trade practices at that time, thinking about who would have made the trunk. Was it a skilled craftsperson or was it somebody who just um, through their course of their daily life had to make the majority of, of the objects in their home for themselves? And I really started to think about how much you can learn from an object. And I wanted to share that kind of aha moment with others. I had been an okay student in high school, you know, where I mostly learned from rote memorization, reading textbooks, you know, kind of regurgitating stuff back on paper. But when I got to college, and had the opportunity to take classes where we were working with primary materials, whether it be a painting or a, or a gravestone or a, or a trunk, and kind of peel back the layers of learning and history from those things, it, it all came alive to me. And um, I think that's true for a lot of people. And so I think at that moment I gained a passion for this style of teaching, which is really kind of museum education. Um, and I've had some cool opportunities as an intern at Joslin and um, at the Newport Historical Society to practice that. And it's been really meaningful to now work internally for OPS to bring some of those methodologies um, to students. I have to ask, why then did you embark on law? So I love the law. I mean, I as much as I loved and was passionate about art history and American studies, I think that America's legal system is equally inspiring and was attractive to me as a young person. Um, I also saw it as a very practical way to support oneself so that you could have the income and the ability to maybe own art or travel and visit museums. I always respected that duality in myself, that I liked both kind of the um, more art-oriented studies and then um, that I liked the law as well. I always saw law as a way to help people solve problems um, and also to prevent problems from arising uh, and just being a practical way to help people. This may be stretching this too far, but I feel like there's a shared groundedness that comes mm -hmm. from both of those yes. philosophies. I, I, I could see that sort of the duality of mm -hmm. the groundedness of the primary material plus the stories that go with it. I mean, isn't that what a lawyer is doing with the Constitution or with code is, you know, reading from those original source documents and interpreting them? So what has surprised you? What have you learned and what, what has been unexpected for you embarking on the creation or the, and, and the development of making invisible history is visible and over this last 10 years? What has surprised me? I think one thing that has surprised me is how long we've been going, um, that it has kept my interests, that it has kept the community's interest for this long. Um, I think the community and me personally have never felt more passionate about it than I currently do. And I think that's surprising. I mean, I think most things after a while you kind of start to lose interest in, but this, this remains relevant, what we're doing, and remains meaningful to the students who come through every year and the teachers that participate in our program. You mentioned that one of the pleasures for you was the ability to interact with the oral history interviewees. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to speak a little bit more about some of those people and their personalities and, and their stories and what has spoken to you about that opportunity to meet and engage them. It has been so wonderful to, it's like detective work, you know, finding, I mean, because everybody has a history, but not everybody is well positioned to be able to talk to students about it. So, you know, there's definitely people in the community that have the history, but they're not going to be able to interact well with, you know, an eighth grader. Um, so that makes it kind of a fun project to kind of find those 
people for st the students to interview. So, you know, some of the highlights for me in the last couple of years are those moments where somebody surprises you. You know, you have a name on a piece of paper and you don't know much more about them. Um, and then, you know, the first time that you interact with them, you realize they are just an incredible human living a really interesting, meaningful life. Um, and that not only is that the case, but they are generous and willing to share that story with students. It's really special. So I'll share just two examples. This year, we were working on finding um, funk musicians and Barry Thomas had been chatting up a security guard at one of the OPS buildings. And the, the gentleman said, oh, you know who you have to talk to. It's the security guard at, you know, he named another building. Um, and so I was given a, I was told to go back to, you know, school one and get more information from that security guard, which I did. And then I got the name of this man who has grown to mean so much to me. His name is Juan Lively and he works at Central Park Elementary. So I get uh, Mr. Lively's name. I know nothing about him. I have no idea what to expect, but he told me to meet him the next day at Central Park at 2 p.m. So I, you know, leave the TAC building, park my car, and I start to walk towards the front of the building. And there, standing on the steps with blue shaded lens glasses, and the biggest smile I've ever seen is Mr. Lively, who is just so delighted that somebody wants to hear about his music career and that he's going to have the opportunity to share it with OPS students on a more broad level. He was already sharing it with students at Central Park Elementary. So he walks me into the building and it turns out he's already been chatting this up with the bus driver at the school who it turns out grew up in Omaha, oh no, excuse me, he grew up in Philadelphia but moved to Omaha um, kind of at the height of Omaha's funk music scene and played with some of the more important bands locally. So the two of them are sitting in chairs in the Central Park cafeteria just giving me every name I need to know, every venue that was important and like want to do the interview that day. Can hardly wait for July. Um, and we just had a really engaging and entertaining conversation between that initial meet and discussion and the time that they actually came to the White CEC Center um, with their guitars and their sound man for the interview in July. So that was definitely a, like a, a, a good moment this year. Um, another really great, I mean, there's been so many great ones. I was really impressed by how much the Polka community was eager and ready to share their story. Um, as they would say, Polka is happy music for happy people. And they want the next generation of Omahans to share that passion for the music that connected them to their ancestors and their homeland and they came out with great enthusiasm and would you know immediately agree to an interview and bring photos and songs and smiles 
Do you think there is anything specific that Omaha should know about itself? And would you extrapolate that to a general comment that most communities should know about themselves? You know, unless you are a member of an indigenous tribe who's from Nebraska, you are an immigrant and your family and your family's history involves its movement to this place. And, you know, oftentimes folks were moving here for kind of the same economic or, um, you know, the same reasons, in large part economic reasons, or maybe to escape um, oppression in another place. And that is uniting to look at what brought people here, but then also to understand what community they made for themselves once they got here, which usually centered around a place, a couple neighborhoods, and um, once established in that place, all these all these different ethnic and cultural groups did the same thing they were doing at home. They made meals together and went to church together and made music together and got married and had children and sent their kids to the neighborhood school and maybe went to the neighborhood bar. And that's a, I think that's a, maybe not a universal story, but I would guess that it's a national story, story of, um, of immigrants trying to find their place in, in a new, in a new world. What has been your experience of the power of these kinds of conversations that you see happening, whether it's between students and teachers, students and community members, community members in return with the students? What has been the power of story and the power of conversation to enable people to feel heard and to have these stories, or rather these histories, made visible? I think it's twofold. I think one is pride, whether it be pride in your own history or a pride in your classmates' history. And I think both of those are so important, whether you're a kid from South Omaha or West Omaha or North Omaha, to understand and see the value in that history is, I think, life-changing. And for me, you know, the other, so I think there's pride and then I think there's tolerance and acceptance. And I think knowing that allows you to have tolerance and acceptance for both yourself and for others. The work of the students is documented digitally, which mm-hmm. means it's available more broadly. And do you do you track how those digital resources are consumed? We do. Um, we send surveys out amongst OPS teachers, social studies teachers. So we track how often social studies teachers are using the content in their classroom. And um, for U.S. history teachers, most of them are finding a way to use it in their classroom and are saying that it has had a positive benefit on their students and on their classroom instruction. That is an even um, stronger statement for the teachers that have gone through our program. They are the most committed to using the material and sharing it with their students. And I think it's important to note that they are either using it directly in their classroom instruction or they're just using it to help understand the students in their classroom um, and the neighborhood that they're teaching in. Time and money, no object. If you could go and do your own social history project, Mm -hmm. what would that project be for you? That's an amazing question. Um, it's like I know a little too much to be able to answer that. Um, it's like asking me what my favorite color is. I love all the colors. Um, I think a project that I'm interested in right now, I'd like to know more about um, in Omaha, the women's suffrage movement. I'd like to know more about the women in this community and not just in the white community in Omaha, um, but in all neighborhoods, what their involvement was in helping secure the right to vote. Unfortunately, I I would assume that the majority of the women that were involved in that aspect of history have passed, so it would not be a direct oral history project. But maybe maybe there are still some kids of those women around who would want to talk about that subject. 
part of the joy of my job is that I can flush out some of those dreams and try to make them happen. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Emily Brush, the project coordinator and director of Making Invisible Histories Visible, a program of Omaha Public Schools. Emily, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Stuart. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>